Good evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Schumann, born in 1810 in Zwickau, in, in Saxony, um, grew up in a household of books. His father, August Schumann, was a bookseller and a writer. And so Schumann grew up not only hearing music, but reading voraciously. This, for the whole time that he was sane, and that wasn't all of his life, this was a huge part of his life, reading and writing. Um, when we think of the Romantic period, we think of music suddenly having more of a connection with literature. Bach composed week after week, masterpiece after masterpiece, but he wasn't deeply influenced by things that he read. Mozart wasn't deeply influenced by things that he read. Beethoven actually was influenced by a couple of poets. But suddenly, in the Romantic period, Chopin and Mendelssohn, who were both born just you know, within a year before Schumann, suddenly everyone is feeling this connection between the arts. And Schumann, I think, to a greater extent than any of the other Romantic composers, embodied this. I skipped over Schubert. I'm not sure that that Schubert read a whole lot. He obviously read poems because he wrote over 600 songs, so for all of those songs he had to find texts and poetry that appealed to him. Schumann began life as a pianist, and by the time he was seven, he was composing. What was interesting about Schumann's composing, two things were interesting. One was that he never had a teacher. He never really uh, studied the way so many of the great composers did. He figured it all out for himself. And what he did when he sat down to improvise is he created musical sketches of people around him, his family, his friends, and everybody, apparently, even when he was a child, could tell immediately which person he was representing. <laughs> Now, I love to improvise, but I'm sure if I sat down and tried to improvise one person in this room, it would be hard for all of you to guess which person I was doing. But apparently, Schumann had that talent. Now, these pieces were very short. He would be able to create in 30 seconds or a minute a portrait of a, of a person. He was not very comfortable speaking. He was very shy. Schumann grew up in this household, as I say, reading and reading, and quickly he developed a few particular loves. Goethe, Schiller, not so surprising, and Jean-Paul Richter, not so well known, a man whose novels had romanticism at their very heart. And the theme that Jean-Paul Richter developed more and more was the person who at the same time was two people. Well, the blessing and the curse of Robert Schumann is he was at least two people most of the time. And he recognized at an early age that there was something not normal about his mind. This ran in his family. Um, he had a sister who also went mad. He had a child who went mad. It was, it was nothing new in the Schumann clan. Um, but Schumann, quite sensibly, discovered early on that he could use literature and use music to 
calm some of the fury he felt inside when he was swinging wildly from being one person to another. Now, psychology was not in the 1820s or 30s or 40s what it is today, and so there was really nothing that Schumann or anybody with these conditions could do, except when it got bad enough, they went into an insane asylum. Schumann found a way to express these different personalities in music, and some psychologists who've written about Schumann have said that uh, it's probably the best therapy that he could have had, certainly from what was available at the time. Schumann had two particular uh, personalities that he spoke about a lot. He even, he even gave them names. And when he would write, sometimes he would write as a dialogue between these two characters. He called them Floristan and Eusebius. Floristan was very outgoing and manic, and Eusebius was very uh, thoughtful and introverted. Some psychologists have also said maybe Schumann had a, a bipolar disorder, probably, but, but that implies there were only two poles. And as I say, Schumann felt there were quite a few going on. Uh, so part of his gift was probably that when he was creating a musical improvisation that represented somebody, he actually became that person and, and could uh, compose or improvise being that person, uh, not just as an outsider trying to observe that person. Um, Schumann's father, unfortunately, died when Schumann was 16. And so, although Schumann had been dreaming that he would become a musician, his mother was not interested in that. She remarried, and neither she nor his stepfather saw that there was much good in this mentally unstable child becoming uh, an artist. And they pushed him towards law. He was very smart. He could do that. But he didn't have much interest in law. Anyway, they sent him to university in Leipzig. In Leipzig, where he did study law, he happened to hear some great performances. He heard Moscheles play the piano, and he heard Paganini play the violin. And he wrote to his mother and said, this was the decisive moment in my life. As I have been trying to choose between law and music, now it is clear to me that I will be choosing music. So he didn't get much support from home for this. And he tried to earn some money starting a musical newspaper, the uh, Neue Musikzeitschrift, Neue Zeitschrift für Musik, so the new periodical for music. And in this, he would write about all the music that he heard and all the composers that he heard. And he tended to be very generous. He would talk about the wonderful performance of composers that we don't even know today. William Sterndale Bennett had just come and given a piano recital, and it was marvelous. And so Schumann would write about William Sterndale Bennett. So all of these musicians that came to Leipzig became part of Schumann's magazine. And Schumann did earn some money, enough that he could take some piano lessons. He found a wonderful piano teacher whose name was Friedrich Wieck. And Mr. Wieck said, I can make you into one of the greatest pianists in Europe within three years. Well, Mr. Wieck obviously had a very high opinion of himself. Um, and um, 
the, the proof was that he had a nine-year-old daughter named Clara. And boy, at nine, Clara could already play circles around everybody else in Leipzig. So Schumann moved in with Mr. Wieck and spent a year taking lessons all the time. And he did indeed become quite a fine pianist. And he published his Opus One. When musicians write their compositions, once they write something they like well enough, uh, they label it Opus One. Uh, opus is Latin for work. Okay, So this is work number one that's fit for the public. And his Opus One uh, was actually commissioned uh, by a woman, a countess, whose last name was Abegg, A-B-E-G-G. So Schumann started his piece, Opus One, like this. Well, if you know uh, the German musical alphabet. It doesn't go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It goes A, B, C, D, E. Sorry, it goes A, H. We call B natural H in German. I don't know why that is so, but B is B flat to us. So the letters A, B, E, G, G actually are this. And the piece was... And then when the tune comes back, he spells the name backwards. G-G-E-B, being B-flat, A. I don't know if Countess Abegg ever even realized that, <laughs> but that's the theme. And then there are virtuoso variations. And uh, Schumann writes this great virtuoso piece. It's very uh, lighthearted and it's very uh, impressive. It is romantic in some senses, but it really fits into the mold of uh, the same virtuoso pieces that Hummel or Clementi or other composers were writing. But Opus 2, Opus 2, he rereads one of his favorite novels by Jean-Paul Richter. And he decides he's going to turn this into uh, a piece that, instead of having variation form, which is a form that's been used for 100 years, he's going to create his own form. He's going to join together lots of tiny little sketches that each one represents a different character in the book, which you'll remember he does very skillfully. So it's called papillon, which is French for butterflies. <laughs> little sketch represents a different person with a different character. Um, what else is in there? So Schumann has really developed a whole new musical form. Tiny little sketches, dozens of them, that he strings together and that create the atmosphere, in this case, of a particular work of literature. 
Well, this was new. And not only are the pieces this way, but he begins in his piano pieces to name them. He gives them fanciful names. In the night, um, whims, uh, soaring, um, end of the song, uh, dream visions. Okay, now Chopin and Mendelssohn were also romantic composers, but they gave their pieces names like Scherzo, Ballade, you know. So, <laughs> so Schumann was the first person to personalize these works, uh, you know, no longer calling them sonata or suite or anything like that, but actually using his literary background to name all of these, these pieces. So now a tragedy occurs. Schumann, who is quite an accomplished pianist himself, decides that the fourth finger on his right hand is too weak and that if he listens to his teacher, Mr. Wieck, and puts it in a leather band, he will be able to strengthen it. Well, instead, he tears all the tendons in his hand and um, goes to a surgeon who, this is this advanced state of medicine in, in 1831, cuts, cuts all the tendons around the, the finger and then has Schumann do a cure where they slaughter a pig and Schumann sticks his hand inside the bleeding animal because the vitality from the pig is supposed to restore. Guess what? It didn't work. <laughs> so here's Schumann, now no longer able to play the piano. However, this tragedy had uh, a repayment. Yes. <laughs> uh, by now, uh, little Clara Schumann, who is touring all over Europe, has turned into this beautiful 13-year-old, and she and Schumann are already madly in love. You remember, Schumann lived in the house for a while. Uh, and now he's trying to get back in the house, and Mr. Wieck is doing everything he can to keep Robert out of the house. <laughs> because obviously Robert is now no longer going to be a concert pianist. Um, the pig treatment didn't work. And what's more, everyone knows about his mental condition. He's already tried to kill himself once by jumping off a bridge uh, when his sister died. And so Schumann is not the ideal son-in-law. And, you know, with all due respect, I think Mr. Wieck was right. You wouldn't want to <laughs> throw away your daughter. And, and let's say Clara Wieck was the apple of her father's eye. She was immensely talented. She was already giving concerts all over the place. So... Schumann now has to secretly see Clara whenever he can. And so he travels around, hanging around in coffee shops, smoking cigars, drinking coffee, drinking lots of things, actually, and um, just hoping to catch a short glimpse of her when she leaves the concert hall. So they have this very intense relationship with not a lot of actual contact. On the other hand, this spurs Schumann to write a lot of music. And... It feeds his passionate soul. Much of the music he now writes has some relation to Clara. Uh, his Opus 3 is a set of Paganini variations that only she can play. His Opus 5 is based on an impromptu that she wrote. Oh, did I mention she also was a good composer? So here's this fantastically talented, young, beautiful woman, and Robert Schumann, who is... <coughs> Uh, nine years, eight or nine years older than she is. So um, he composes a piece called The Dances of the Band of David. What, you will ask, is the Band of David? Schumann is still writing his magazine. 
he invents a society called the Band of David, an imaginary group, not hard for a person who's mine, an imaginary group of people, uh, including living and dead people, that includes Berlioz, whom he admired, Paganini, whom he admired very much, uh, Bach, who of course wasn't subscribing, but was part of the group, and uh, all the Band of David together opposed what Schumann called the Philistines. The Philistines were the people who didn't see the value of good new music. So um, the Band of David got a suite of 18 pieces, all written not by Schumann, but by Floristan and Eusebius. <laughs> so Schumann just channeled them, and in they came, and they wrote these pieces. And he actually signs the pieces all by Floristan and Eusebius, and even writes in between what Floristan and Eusebius are thinking. He'll say, Floristan's uh, eyes shone as he said this next part, and then comes, you know, piece number 13. And Eusebius's lip trembled as he said the following. So the opening of this whole suite of pieces, the, the dances of the band of David, the David's Bündertänze, is a theme by Clara. And of course, Eusebius's pieces are very introverted, like... Uh, Whereas Floristan's pieces are very exuberant and almost manic. So both of these characters are writing for Schumann. <laughs> and Schumann tries once again to approach Clara's father about the possibility of him marrying Clara. Well, the father makes it so clear to Schumann that this will never happen, that Schumann goes and finds another talented girl nine years younger than he is and uh, gets engaged to her. So, oops, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, now he has two 15-year-old girlfriends, and um, he writes a piece called The Carnival. Now, in Germany, during the time right before Lent begins, Carnival is when you can make love to anyone you want to and nobody asks any questions. So in this piece, he writes pieces to both girls. That's why it's carnival, okay? So um, the one piece, he, he disguises them both. Uh, as you probably picked up from that trick with the A-B-E-G-G, -G, Schumann likes secrets and things that are in the music but not stated explicitly. So there are two different women, Clara, whom he calls Chiarina, um, and Ernestine von Fricken, whom he calls Estrella, and they both have movements named after them in this gigantic carnival. Uh, he also takes the letters of the city where uh, Ernestine von Fricken lives in a German village called Asch, A-S-C-H. Now, in German, again, the note names aren't the same. So uh, they call E-flat S, and they call A-flat AS, A-S. So A-flat is AS, and then C, the letter C is C, and H, as I said, is B natural. So we have, 
And then the letters in Schumann's name that belong to the German musical alphabet are S-C-H-A. Same letters as an Osh, but switched around. And so he says S, S is E flat, C, H, A. So the whole piece, the whole half hour piece is built on those little motifs. Now, if you don't know that, you'd never guess it. And if you didn't know that Chiarina was really Clara Wieck, you'd never know it. And if you didn't know that uh, Estrella was really Ernestine von Fricken. But here's Clara's piece. obviously was no shrinking violet. Uh, uh, Ernestine's piece goes like this. drawn to weak women. Okay. <laughs> Chopin makes an appearance in the piece. Uh, Schumann paints a musical portrait of Chopin. piece with a confrontation between the band of David, you remember who they were, and the Philistines. <laughs> so the band of David comes in in a very proud Germanic way. <laughs> and they put the Philistines to flight and we hear the frightened Philistines. Then the happy band of David is the triumphant. As someone pointed out, this happens in many musical situations where there's a conflict between good and evil. Evil usually gets the better music. And <laughs> this is no exception. So Schumann is beginning to become quite well known as a composer. And he thinks that perhaps uh, he will be able to convince Father Wieck that um, you know, he, he would actually be a suitable husband after all. Uh, Father Wieck starts a restraining order and says Schumann may never come near the house. <laughs> and at this point, 
Schumann feels that the only thing to do, remember he'd studied law for a little while, uh, was to take the whole thing to court. So a battle ensues years long. Uh, finally, the only thing that helps Schumann is that he realizes once Clara is 21, she will be free to do whatever she wants. But there's still a few years between then and when Schumann can, can he will be 30 at that time. So Schumann uh, continues to write these pieces that are so full of longing. And uh, you know, perhaps for us, uh, it's better that he had to suffer through those years because the music that comes out is fantastic. All of this music is piano music. He, of course, can't play it himself anymore, but um, he has every bit of knowledge how to write for the piano, and he knows that ultimately Clara will play these pieces. He's writing them for her even when she can't get her hands on them. So uh, he writes um, a piece, a set of pieces called Fantasiestücke, fantasy pieces. Now you'll probably see why this is in keeping with the Schumann you've been hearing about. He doesn't like to write in traditional forms. He loves to create these short pieces that somehow uh, create all these different moods. And once again, you can hear very distinctly the difference between the pieces written by the Floristan side of his personality and the Eusebius side of his personality. Um, actually, I'm going to jump back to Carnival for one second because there's actually a piece in Carnival called Floristan. The There's actually a piece called Eusebius. So Schumann is openly saying these are the two characters who dominate my mind. He decided that um, when he tried to appeal to Clara's father, that he would say uh, that he had found balance to his mental illness. And Clara's father, I guess, had enough of a conversation to say, yeah, and just what is that? And Schumann said, it's a whole other character that is taking over my mind. <laughs> and, and his name is Meister Raro, R-A-R-O, which is you know, Italian for rare. He says he has very rare judgment. But his name comes from the fact that if you put together the names Clara and Robert, the last two letters of Clara are A with the first two letters of Robert. Are, by this time, I think the door had been slammed in his face. So all of these characters in Schumann's mind find their outlet in these pieces. The Fantasiestücke. Then, you remember I told you there was this pianist he thought was so wonderful named William Sterndale Bennett, an Englishman. So. Um, Schumann tries to, to cozy up to Clara's father, who has written a little piece, which is not very good, and Schumann uh, creates an incredible set of variations on this piece. Uh, the theme, Clara's father's theme, goes... You can see why Schumann's personality didn't appeal to him. So from this, Schumann comes up with amazing. Yeah, and uh, 
Eusebius writes a few. And he writes a finale to this suite by, uh, dedicated to his friend William Sterndale Bennett. And it incorporates a very popular uh, British tune as a tribute to, to Bennett. called the symphonic etudes because uh, although it's a piece for piano it imitates effects from the symphony orchestra never written for the orchestra. He's not even uh, tempted by it. He doesn't write for instruments. He's just writing for the piano. But as the day of the 21st birthday of Clara draws near, <laughs> with his connection with literature, he starts to write songs. He doesn't write, you know, 10 songs or two dozen songs. He writes 150 songs. <laughs> And they're really good, too. So he takes his favorite poets. He takes Rilke. He takes Heinrich Heine. He takes Eichendorf. And um, I'll try to, I'm not a singer. This is from a, a song cycle called Dichterliebe that Heine wrote about a poet in love. go right into each other. Aus meinen Tränen springen viel blühende Blumen hervor. 
Eusebius is writing this one. And then Florestan writes one. Die Rose, die Lille, die Taube, die Sonne, die Lied, die ganz einmal in Liebesmorne. So the two of them, the three of them, the four of them, who knows, write this song cycle. And um, it's fabulous. And he's meanwhile writing love songs to Clara, but also songs about the sorrow and the pain of not being able to be with her. Um, th there's a famous song called Widmung. Du uh, meine Seele. I should have told you what those words meant. Uh, the, the song that I sang, um, in the wonderful month of May, when all the buds are just coming out, um, I began to love her. And in the wonderful month of May, when all the birds began to sing, I confessed my longing. So one of the themes of Romanticism, with a capital R, is nature. That we as humans connect with nature, with the rivers and the birds and the nightingales and the trees. And Schumann felt this so strongly. Um, I think that so few of his songs don't make some reference to to his connection, or he found poets that felt a connection with nature. So this other song I was just going to show you a little bit of. Du meine Seele, du mein Herz, du meine Wahl, du mein Schmerz, du meine Welt, in der ich lebe, mein Himmel, da rein ich schwebe. And he builds a song saying, you're my joy, but you're also my pain. You are everything I need, but you're also the, the, the thorn that is in my side that always moves me to something. So this was also a very romantic uh, period concept that love embraced uh, the good and the bad. It embraced the joy and the pain. And many of Schumann's songs reflected this sentiment. Clara is nearing her 21st birthday. <laughs> and I want to make it clear that this was not a simple decision for Clara. She loved Robert very much. She wanted to be married to him. They'd been having a passionate affair. At the same time, her father was her mentor, her teacher, and uh, the two of them were very close. And she knew that whichever man she wound up with, the other one would be gone. The trial came to the point where Father Wieck told the jury that Schumann had severe alcohol problems, which was absolutely true, uh, <laughs> that, that he was um, mentally unstable to be married to his daughter, or in fact anybody, which was also absolutely true. Um, and in fact, the jury finally decided in favor of Clara marrying Robert on the day before her 21st birthday because they knew that the following day she'd be able to do whatever she wanted. And she had made it clear that she was in the courtroom to marry Schumann. The two married. They set up house. Schumann kept writing songs. He was really happy about this whole arrangement. Uh, children started coming right away. And Clara said, now, let's talk about something. If you want to be taken seriously, does this sound like marriage? If you want to be taken seriously as a composer, you've got to write symphonies, not just piano pieces and songs. You've got to write symphonies like Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn. And 
Schumann said, fine. So he wrote a couple of symphonies just like that. And, and they were terrific. They were really great. So um, Schumann not only wrote symphonies, but then he wrote works for piano and orchestra, not just the famous piano concerto, but several pieces called Concertstück, concert pieces. But you all know the, the concerto. The, um away, anybody hearing this piece would know this was not a piece in classical form. It's a poetic outpouring. Now, a symphony, or a piano concerto for that matter, has to have a more organized architecture than all these little piano pieces Schumann had been writing, or songs which can last anywhere from 30 seconds to a few minutes. How did romantic composers move away from the wonderful sonata form to other forms that could still hold works of the same length together. They used thematic repetition. They took a theme and they reworked it into every mood so that that theme became the organizational kernel that held the whole piece together. If you think of Hector Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, he says, I have an idée fixe, I have a fixed idea. And this idea comes up in different tempi, in different keys, but recognizably in all five movements of that symphony. If you think of Franz Liszt, who was born just a year after Schumann, and they admired each other very much, by the way, uh, Liszt wrote a sonata, but it's certainly not in sonata form. It has a theme which comes back over and over and unites the work. And if you went to the Lenzik on Saturday and saw Das Rheingold, you saw the first two and a bit hours of, let's see, 15 hours of opera, all held together by themes, Wagner's leitmotifs. So all of the romantic composers were struggling to find other architectures to hold their much more um, what shall I say? They're, they're ideas that, that go off in so many different directions. Uh, they're trying to express, after all, not only a wider variety of emotions, but also uh, mystery, which is key to romanticism, the exotic, which is key to romanticism, and secrecy. For Schumann, secrecy was huge. Coding people's names and cities into the letters of the musical alphabet in the pieces, but other kinds of secrecy as well. That that a piece might represent something that he would never tell. Tchaikovsky never told the world what is the real theme of the Pathetic Symphony. Edward Elgar has never revealed what is the enigma of the Enigma Variations. That is a very romantic concept. Schumann writes these symphonies. He becomes more famous. He writes his piano concerto, but he's still losing his mind, and he knows it. He said, I have ceased calling what afflicts me madness, which has, after all, literary romantic resonances, and I have begun to call it illness. 
So this is a bad moment for Schumann. He realizes that to hold things together, uh, he has to be very careful. And at a certain point in the marriage, after one of several suicide attempts, he says to Clara, I'm sorry, but for your safety and the children's safety, we are going to lock me into a room at night. And you are going to have the key, and you are going to let me in, and you are going to let me out. And Clara's saying, okay, fine. So this gets tricky because Clara's still going on concert tours. She can't leave Robert at home with the children. So Robert and Clara go on the concert tours, and Robert has to be locked in his room every night. And um, somehow they have to figure out a way to deal with this difficult situation. They move to Dusseldorf because Schumann believes that a change of environment may help him. And he takes a post as a conductor. He writes, of all of his four symphonies, what I think most people consider the greatest one, the Rhine Symphony. He's now living by the Rhine. And the Rhine is not only a beautiful river, but it is iconic of the best of Germany to souls in the 19th century. And so he writes the Rhenish Symphony. Um, so I can do this. Christmases ago, we played this in the Lenzik. It was, um, I think, the first time anybody had ever played Schumann's Third Symphony here. Somebody asked me, why does Schumann not get the same uh, popularity as, as other great composers? Um, Schubert wrote great songs, too. But are, are Schumann's songs weaker than Schubert's songs? No. Are, are Schumann's symphonies weaker than Brahms's symphonies? No. Um, I'm not really sure. But, but I do think that Schumann is, is a great composer, not just a really good composer. And um, it's wonderful because there's so much music to discover uh, because you don't get to hear it as often. So um, I hope that after tonight you'll look around for some Schumann. You'll almost never be disappointed. The, um, the conducting engagement in Dusseldorf did not turn out well. Um, Schumann was becoming less and less able to control what he said. Um, so I haven't read this exactly, but it sounds like a kind of Tourette's syndrome that if somebody wasn't playing, Schumann would be abusive. Uh, he would even turn abusive to Clara sometimes. At this point, enter into the Schumann's life one Johannes Brahms, 22 years younger than Schumann. And Schumann is completely taken with this young man and his great music, and he really comes out of his a mad state for a little while because he's simply so excited that there's another composer uh, who he's excited about the way he was when Chopin had first come to his attention 20 years before when he said to the world, hats off, gentlemen, a genius. So Brahms becomes uh, an intimate of both Robert and Claire, and the three of them are inseparable. But then one day, Schumann is walking home, and he decides to throw himself off the bridge into the Rhine. And this is the most uh, close he's come to a successful suicide. Somebody sees him, hauls him out of the river, and um, 
both Brahms and Clara don't know what to do. Schumann has to go into a mental institution. In fact, he voluntarily goes into a mental institution. He, he says, I'm no longer fit for anybody. Now, as I've said, uh, psychology and medicine were not at that time what they were today. And the doctor, one Dr. Ricard, said rather unwisely to Schumann, uh, you should not write any more music. It's bad for you. So Schumann may have composed in his head, but not another note came out of him. And needless to say, the deterioration accelerated rapidly from that point. He also said to Clara, you may not come to visit him. So for two and a half years in this institution, he never saw Clara. And Brahms moved in. Nobody knows how platonic or not their relationship was. But Brahms moved in, and while Clara was on tour, became the nursemaid to the eight Schumann children. And um, some of these, I guess two of these children did not survive childhood. But uh, the other six did. And so, you know, Brahms was there, not composing particularly because <laughs> six kids was a, a full-time job for Mr. Brahms. And um, so, so from... from uh, 1854 to 1856, if you're looking at a catalog of Brahms' works, you'll see there's not a Maybe that's when he wrote the lullaby, I don't know. But, but uh, Brahms really was there. And uh, finally, two days before Schumann died, everyone at the institution knew that this was the end, and um, Clara was finally allowed to see him. And that was how that was handled. Uh, crazy. Um, Schumann, toward the end of his life, before he went into the institution, did write some pieces. And uh, these pieces got bad press for a long time. Oh, well, he wasn't really able to write anymore. I, I can't say I agree with this. In fact, if you go to Christopher Taylor's recital, they all go, aha! <laughs> <laughs> if you go to Christopher Taylor's recital, he's going to play one of Schumann's very last piano cycles. Um, and it has eight short movements. It sort of harkens back to the old style. Scenes from the woods, nature. And at one point, there's a bird a prophet bird, not just any bird, but uh, this bird has um, some kind of mystical revelation. To... It's, it's fabulous. So go to that recital and hear more of what Schumann did just before he went in. Now, uh, I'm always um, criticized because I give you a dozen little snippets of pieces, so I actually have a whole piece to play you. Imagine that. I'm going to play you a big piece by Schumann, and I just want to say two things about it. Um, it's called fantasy, which now that you know about Schumann will hardly surprise you. Uh, this one movement that I'm going to play, the first movement, goes through dozens of moods and characters, but he binds them together thematically so that instead of it being ten little pieces, all the characters come together and have conversations. This piece was written before he was married to Clara, and it's called very pointedly Fantasy in C. Schumann didn't write in C very much, but we all know who C is, okay? And he writes a little motto uh, from the poet Schlegel. Schlegel and Tieck translated all of Shakespeare into German. But Schlegel wrote his own poetry, too. And he wrote a little four-line motto. Durch alle Töne tönet im bunten Erdentraum ein leise Ton gezogen für den, der heimlich lauschet. Through all the sounds of Earth's colored dream, there is a faint sound uh, that is there for anybody who listens secretly. Okay, now that could be Schumann's life in a nutshell. So this is the first movement of Schumann's fantasy in C.
there are two more movements, I'll play them for you another time. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions about Schumann before we go eat more cookies? <laughs> yes, Jeff. That's a famous question. I, I don't know if everybody heard this. Schumann had never orchestrated before. So did the orchestration, the, in other words, the, the way that he used instruments to put across his melodies, uh, make it difficult for the players? Is that in any sense responsible for the lesser fame of the pieces? Um, probably, but as you know, uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony is never performed by major orchestras the way Beethoven wrote it. People doctor it up and they make it sound clearer and they do all kinds of things. And um, Schumann symphonies have the same thing. There are parts that players use, that orchestras use, that um, change them and supposedly give them more clarity. But um, Bernstein was probably the first conductor to say, no, no, if you do what's intended in these symphonies, they're terrific. And um, he conducted Schumann symphonies everywhere. You know, they were birds of a feather, really. So um, he, he brought it to the public's attention. And I think that uh, the Schumann symphonies are, are a lot more known because of Bernstein's work. Um, Karyon, there's a great YouTube, I'm a YouTube junkie. So there's a YouTube video of, of Karyon conducting um, a rehearsal of Schumann's fourth symphony in D minor, which is uh, full of, of Sturm und Drang. And at one point, he says, and here, well, we all know what happened. <laughs> and <laughs> he's sort of saying, well, it's not great music because the poor man went crazy. I don't think that's true at all. I think Schumann went back and rewrote it, trying to depict the very state that he was in. So maybe a person with a less clear mind, if they're orchestrating honestly, writes less clear orchestrations. I, I think that they're brilliant as they are. Um, there's also a video of Michael Tilson Thomas playing one of the symphonies and showing how um, it's up to a good symphony orchestra to keep inner voices in their place and um, you know, let the, the main themes come out even if the composer has scored the inner voices thickly. And uh, you know, once again, uh, metaphorically and really, Schumann had a lot of inner voices. So uh, there was a lot of conversation going on and I think we're hearing what was in his head. Uh, so I think we shouldn't meddle with them and we should leave them the way they are. <laughs> Anything else? Yes? Um, they are they're very intelligent, um, but they are not the kind of music that you could hear over and over and keep finding new depth in. I think she was a very intelligent musician in addition to being one of the world's greatest pianists. But um, the, the musical themes that Schumann took were always very short, and I think he was wise. Um, he never tried to take a long theme of Clara's and develop it into something else. Uh, I think she excelled in, you know, four-bar inspirations. And that, after all, was the whole challenge, as I was trying to say, of romanticism, that you, you have to have a structure to create anything more than a few bars. And um, Schumann really invented more than anybody else that structure for himself. Um, and more than Mendelssohn, certainly, or Beethoven, or uh, Chopin. He was self-taught. He, he just 
found his own way without, he said the only person that taught me counterpoint was Jean Paul, this novelist, because he loved the way the characters kept weaving back and forth with each other. But he never had a particularly good music teacher except the man who helped him ruin his hand. Uh, so, you know, Wieck wasn't teaching him about music, he was just teaching him how to play the piano. Uh, so Clara gets revived, you know, there's a cello concerto and there's a piano concerto and there are some lovely songs. Um, but I think she fits into that rank with hundreds and hundreds of good composers um, who are good composers. But she, you know, it was a wonderful marriage because a great pianist married a great composer. And uh, she went on living a long time after uh, Schumann and played his music all over the world and Brahms's music all over the world. Uh, and the tragedy, I mean, like I say, nobody knows. My personal uh, lineage of piano teachers is that um, the teacher that I worked with when I went to Europe, um, she was born in 1899, and her teacher had been a pupil of Clara Schumann and Brahms. So I got all this, and her teacher always said, no, no, there was nothing there, nothing, nothing. But, you know, I don't believe that necessarily. In any case, Brahms and Clara Schumann were as close as two people could be for the rest of their lives after Schumann's death, which was another 40 years. And when uh, Clara Schumann finally died, and she was quite old by then, uh, Brahms followed within months. I mean, there was nothing left for him after that. So I mean, there's no question that they were incredibly close and that he relied on her. Somebody calculated that out of the 122 opus numbers that Brahms left, in other words, he burned a lot, and everything that he thought was really good, he let us have. 82 of those were vetted by Clara Schumann before they went to the publisher. So, you know, he completely trusted her artistic judgment. Yes? How old were you when he died? Brahms or Schumann? Uh, Schumann? Schumann would have been 46 when he died. And the actual cause of death, death was not madness. The actual cause of death was that he got syphilis in college, and it was never cured. But as often happened, the symptoms would disappear for a long time, but then they would resurface. So sometime during his two and a half years in the mental institution, the symptoms started to come back. And, you know, the cure was mercury, which was about as good as putting your hand in a pig or all the other things that they would do. That means Clara has too. I have never heard that. I I'm not sure. <laughs> we don't know about Brahms. <laughs> don't you say that. Yes. Oh, okay. There, thank you. <laughs> yeah. He said that by the time they married, because Schumann had to wait so long, um, that he wouldn't have been contagious anymore. Now, again, we don't know how much was going on before they were married, you know, in spite of Wieck's uh, attempts to keep, keep Schumann well away from his daughter. Although she sounds fairly fertile with the eight children. Yes. And, and in fact, there is a uh, Schumann family still direct descendants alive in the United States, in New Hampshire, yeah. One, one of those kids didn't go crazy and didn't die and uh, moved to the United States, and, and so there's a line of, of direct descendants who hopefully didn't get any of the congenital uh, <laughs> Schumann madness, yes. You didn't mention any of the fingers in there. I didn't, did I? Uh, <laughs> so um, there are 13 beautiful pieces called Scenes from Childhood. And again, uh, we hear um, Floristan and Eusebius both at work. Uh, let me see, I don't know if I can do any of this. Thank you. 
you all know that's not quite the right harmony, don't you? Um, but it's very similar to that. And, <laughs> I think it's in this key. And then there's a piece that um, uh, Long Long played as his first encore called uh, Traumerai Daydreaming. Letters, the musical letters from Clara's name are hidden in this piece, C-A-A. -A. Um, and then uh, the poet speaks at the end. So it was wonderful that Schumann, at the same time he was writing that passionate fantasy, was already writing scenes from childhood. And of course, this was before he had uh, any of those eight children. So, so this was a purely poetic, uh, imaginary childhood he was thinking about. Yes? Uh, during what part of his life was the Christmere 1836, so he would have been 26 or 27 years old. Uh, Chryslariana is a work, another gigantic work like the fantasy, uh, in eight separate movements based on this imaginary character, <laughs> surprise, uh, <laughs> that uh, E.T.A. Hoffman created, uh, Chrysler, uh, not related to Chrysler, Fritz Chrysler, the violinist. So uh, Chrysler has all these different moods and Schumann interprets them. So of course it's a perfect subject and uh, I'd say E.T.A. Hoffman, who's responsible, among other things, for the story of the Nutcracker, uh, was right up there with Schumann's favorite writers. He wrote a lot about fantasy and magic and seeing things, but having the things you see not really be the things that are there. And uh, Wonderful, wonderful, another wonderful piece. Yes, sir. Uh, did some musicologists decode Schumann after his death, or did uh, he... Schumann was an incredible journalist. He and Clara both kept private journals, and then they kept something together called the Marriage Journal. If you want to know every detail, it's not about Brahms, but everything else is in the Marriage Journal. So, you know, if he wrote something from the time he was a teenager, he was keeping journals, and he was, he was um, telling all about it. The journals were found later, and now musicologists have a field day because there's so much information from the horse's mouth. Um, you know, it's amazing how much we lose when you think that um, Schubert, you know, I said, when, when Clara said, Robert, write symphonies, she wasn't thinking of Schubert because even though everybody revered Schubert for the songs and a few of the chamber works, nobody knew he had written symphonies. It was Schumann who discovered the manuscript for Schubert's Ninth Symphony. And it wasn't for another 50 years when Sullivan, as in all those Mikado and Pirates of Penzance and, and Groves, as in the dictionary, happened to find four other Schubert symphonies sitting around in a meat house in Vienna, you know, getting ready to pack up somebody's Rindfleisch. So um, we're really lucky that we got some of these symphonies by Schubert because nobody took them seriously and they were just sitting around waiting to be <laughs> discovered. So, anyway, Schumann's journals and diaries are why we know a lot of this secret code material. Well, shall we go finish off the cookies? Thank you all very much. <laughs>